I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio, 105.5 FM in Chicago. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hi, Jamie. Today, we are pleased to be joined, I think for the first time. Have we ever had an Australian writer on the show? Never. Have we ever had a writer who is in Australia on the show? No. So this is two firsts. Jen Craig, she's the author of Panthers and the Museum of Fire. It is out on Zerogram Press right now. One of our favorite small houses, actually, Jim Gower, who you might remember from one of our early shows, runs that press. Novel Explosives. Yes, great book. book. Jen, thanks so much for joining us on uh, this sultry where you are summer day in Australia. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. So this book, uh, I kind of want to start out in in general fashion. Um, It's a very interesting read, and I have to confess, and I'm, I'm saying this at the outset, and it will make sense later on. I actually read this at the doctor's office in one sitting while I was waiting to see my GP uh, the other day. And uh, my GP is a woman named Carol Saltoon. I've had her for 25 years. Um, no, I have. And she's a wonderful doctor. If you, if you ever need a doctor, go to Carol. She's at Northwestern Hospital. Okay, we'll now, talk I'm, later. I'm mentioning this at the outset, and it will become clear why I'm mentioning this later. Jen, this book is a collection of what I would call fictional autobiography. And it is mm-hmm. um, part of an emerging vein of fiction that we've seen uh, come out around the world. Obviously, Karl Ovenoshgard is one of the main practitioners of this. Uh, his, uh, my, uh, you know, my struggle book, uh, you know, six volumes, 6,000 pages. Yours is a very slim, uh, 125, 130 pages with photographs uh, taken by a colleague of yours. Yet it's very much in the same vein. And I wondered if you could start off telling us a little bit why this format of putting a character also named Jen Craig into the story, dealing with things that I think the reader is meant to infer are based somewhat on your life. Why did you put that and take this and and make fiction out of it? Mm, Well, yeah. That's a good question. It wasn't initially, it didn't initially start as that kind of project. Um, I was playing around excavating, if you like, into my experience, which out of which everything comes. Um, but I had envisaged a, a fictional character at the beginning. And um, then I had this experience. Um, I went to this uh, experimental theatre night um, at a at a, at a theatre that's not far from where I live in the city, and, and I don't live in Glebe. Um, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> I don't live in Glebe, so that to, that's to give a view of what the auto fiction is. It's, there's a fictional, a definite fictional aspect to it. That's that's the um, setting of the book for listeners. Yeah, for Glebe. listeners, it's setting Glebe. Yeah. It starts, it, the, the book starts in Glebe, the narrator starts in Glebe on a long walk, or not so long, it depends on how, what, what, what a long walk is for you. Um, I went to this this theatre night and as we arrived, we walked in and we just thought we were just going to sit in regular seats, but we were greeted by uh, somebody with a list of in in um, invitees and uh, we were asked for our name and, and we were announced and I was announced as Jenny Craig and I thought, Whoa! And I don't, for me, that's a big thing. As if you've read the book, you might have some sense of why that might be. And I thought, wow, I felt sort of really like annoyed. Like, why do they do that? Was that intentional? (laughs) Um, 
because I'd said Jen when I when I introduced myself and um, just gave my name and they announced it because it was announced at the microphone. Every person who arrived was announced. And as I was watching this piece, which I don't really remember very much about, um, I had all this churning inside me. What was going on? Why did they do that? What, did, what was going on? Why did they do that? Oh, this is really interesting. There's an edge here. There's something alive here. I want to work with this. I want to. I want to put. I want to work with this. Yeah. So I, I, I just brought that element in. I thought, it's me. It's not me. What is this? What is this? Has been an important aspect of my adult life. So um, it came from there. But I didn't want to do straight. I don't know what a straight autobiography or memoir is. I didn't want to do one of those. Um, is that company still around? Will most listeners know what it is? The the weight loss. Uh, the company, no. The okay. practitioner, Nigel Calloway, is uh, yeah, he's still around. He was actually he was quite an active member of the Sydney Front, which is a theatre, um, an experimental theatre group in oh, I don't know, maybe the eighties. Okay. Um, he used to do things like um, I think once he ate lay. Def- I'm not sure about defecated, but everything in public for several days. He he did lots of different things. Oh boy. Part of this man. <laughs> he was sort of a dancer, musician, theatre person. It wasn't that kind of show. I don't remember. I just remember this beginning and and how it filtered my experience. Of the, oh, the, the, I meant I meant the actually the weight loss company. I I wasn't sure if listeners, oh, most listeners the weight loss company. would be familiar. <laughs> it, it's familiar to me because it it seemed ubiquitous when I was growing up, but I don't I I don't see it anywhere now. Yeah, Jenny Craig. Yeah. Is Jenny Craig even still around? I don't. They used to have the commercials here on TV all the time. I haven't seen them in decades. Yeah. Used to, yes. Yeah. It used to that be, yeah. company. And I, I, I will say, now. I will say, when I saw your name, that's the first thing that popped in my head. But I made a commitment to myself. I'm not going to ask you about <laughs> that. So, but here we are. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I, <laughs> I, I, I put uh, Sarah Ferguson. You know, the former um, British royal used to stump for Jenny Craig diet, and I actually thought since you since you brought it up. You deal with it extremely funnily in the book. I actually laughed out loud at this doctor's office, which I will remind listeners I brought up, so I will get back to why I brought that up. But I I actually thought you dealt very well with that. And that's an interesting thing because the book itself, again, it tells the story of, of, and your character makes a point of saying, um, you know, you might know that I have a name that is similar to this weight loss concern. Uh, The character also suffers from anorexia. Um, which is a mm. major plot point in the book. The, let's back up for a second because you talk about going for a walk, and the walk in the book is what six streets. It's it's not yeah, very long, it, you know. And, and it, it oh no, it's a much longer than is that. It much longer. Is this a long? Glee Point Road is quite a long. Walk. Is it okay? Uh, I I felt it was when I was reading the book, and I I got to the end of it, I was like, <laughs> oh she's she's gone maybe like six or seven. Well, streets. Well, there are, there are transitional parts. So so the book's not in chapters for listeners. There are transitional spots in the narrative where <laughs> you'll you'll come back to the present moment. Well, it's hard to say what the present moment is, but you'll come back to the moment of the narrator walking and. She'll say, "I'm I'm making a turn onto this street, yeah. or I'm passing by this shop," and then it'll mm-hmm. transition into another memory or a memory of a memory. Right. And so I I don't know. Maybe there were a half dozen of those well, transitions. Yeah. I, I so it seemed it, like like six streets. Well, I thought of it like a small Scottish town, really. You know, and oh, okay. I, that was actually something that I thought was really. That's where Jamie grew up. Yeah. Well, it is. But I thought that was something very entrancing about the book. You know, I, I was like, this person has told us a whole story. You know, in like six streets. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I guess it doesn't really matter how long the street is, but 
it, it struck me, you know, when I got to page 120, and that was about when the doctor called me to go into the office. Um, the, oh, you know, we've just taken That's a, a ghastly a long, long wait. I got there a little early. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it was COVID-19 yeah, restrictions was, and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking but, the same. <laughs> it, was, it, took me about, it took me about an hour. I don't know. It wasn't, okay. You know, it's 120 pages, Jeremy. That's, I mean, but it's 120 I'm, I'm dense slow. pages. I'm it's slow. not, yeah. you know, it's not like, I don't know. I didn't it took speed me a while. It. Did it? Yeah. No, I, I read it actually. I Once I really got into it, I, I actually. It did have it that effect. A, yeah. Like, uh, you know, Zone, the book we talked about in the first ever show by yeah. Anar, oh, right, right. that run on sentence. It's, it's, it takes you a minute, but once you get into the mode of the narrator, you just kind of. It's weird. You take on their thinking. Right. And that's what happened with this book. Well, and it reminded me much. We've been talking about Doc's Newberry Port as well. Oh, yeah, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this book, you know, I know your book came out well before Doc's, but um, that was a, a very popular, well, I don't know how popular it was, but it was it was. People short- tried to read it. I finished it, but a lot of people. It was up for the booker. It was up for the booker. It's a long, dense phone book of a book, Jen, if you, if you haven't seen it. And it's. it's no, um, I haven't seen it. No. It's, it's the interior life of a woman in an Ohio town. Um, a pie maker, and you're in her head the whole time. Yeah. And a thousand pages. Uh-huh. A thousand pages of this. So, <laughs> okay. And, and this actually is. this. Uh, let me bring back why I mentioned this, because I actually am a big fan of Carl of Anoshgard. Uh, I really enjoy mm. his books. I am not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't read them. Yeah, it really is a love hate thing. So you you either really really love this stuff or you don't. I, I yeah. just want to interject. What I was going to say when Jamie was talking about that earlier is like I've never been able to finish one of Carl's books, but I finished Jen's. So. Well, and that's this is actually kind of where I'm going with this because I think um, there the two the two things that struck me about your book and one of them. Uh, is not actually very, doesn't reflect very well on me, which is why I want to bring it up. So I was reading the book and I was saying to myself, boy, I'm not really very impressed with Jen Craig, the character. I read the book and I was like, you know, I'm not really sure I really care about this. And then I said to myself, now, wait a minute. Am I saying this because the narrator is a woman? Because I don't feel that way about Carl Ove's books. And so I started to think about that. And I'm sitting in a doctor's office, by the way, going to see a woman doctor. So I was like, this is, you know, now it's really, you know, kind of bouncing around my head. And I was wondering to myself, have I discovered some kind of weird prejudice about myself that I don't know? You know what I mean? Interesting. So I kept, and, and this is, I bring this up because, you know, this kind of thought, I think when a book makes you think about that kind of thing, the book has had a profound effect on you. And your book did have a profound effect on me because I can't stop thinking about many of the subjects in the book. And, you know, I kind of want to get into this because I would really love to get your take. I I think, unfortunately, a lot of times when we talk about women's voices, particularly in literature, we don't weight them the same way that we talk about male voices. This program has been very unusual in that we yeah. have had an enormous number of female authors, and it's been Probably completely 80, by chance. 80%. It's, yeah. it's mostly 80%, and we are three blue-collar guys from Chicago. You know what I mean? Everybody listening knows that you know the three jerks that do this show are guys. Well, so, and one of the reasons that is is I pick books based on reviews. So if I read a review, and there's certain things, that certain reviews that I take stock in, some I don't at all, and it just happened to be that we've – Ended yeah. up with like eighty percent. But writers. you know, my mother's also an author, and I've read her books. You know, what I mean, we we have a bunch of people on there. But again, I wanted to get back to this because I wondered, first of all, if you could talk a little bit about that because I think one of the things that really struck me about the book 
is that this was somebody talking about things that I, I think men don't necessarily think about very often, number one. And number two, I got the feeling some of the things your character was saying were things that people really hadn't paid attention to, and there was a reason they hadn't paid attention to them, and the reason wasn't a very good reason. So I wondered if you could kind of delve into that. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was in, there's a lot in where you came in with that question. Um, I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to play with my fictional self. Um, I, I mean, I have to admit I hadn't read our score um, before I wrote this and this, this comparison <laughs> got me reading. I was, however, I, I, I do I have found I do, I have read a lot of male fiction. There's a lot of male authors that I really, really like is, um, and women as well. But there's somehow the, the male voice has also been very freeing for me. Um, and when it comes to my work, it, it felt to me as if I wanted to bring the the free, the kind of permission that I've got from reading certain kind of authors that I really like to bring to my experience, my what's important to me and, and grounded in my experience. So I, I don't want to write from something detached. And that's partly also why I wanted to use the first person. I wanted to, or a first person I could play with, like, is that me, not me, is it someone? I see, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you weren't sure about whether you liked the narrator. Um, I think it was true to personality. I mean, that's how personalities are. There's shifting, and you we go through the shifting of the narrator's um, thinking about herself and that's yeah. That I could relate to that, you know, like fantasizing about. Yeah, I can see how the idea is appealing, you know, how you can you can twist certain things about your own life to make it more interesting. Well, I don't I, see. I guess the point is, I don't think the character in this book did that. The the character in the book, and I, I don't mean this in terms of look, but the character in the book wasn't an attractive person in a lot of ways, mm. but right. didn't <laughs> seem that didn't seem to matter. You know what I mean? And I thought that was very interesting and liberating. Because usually the main character of a book is somebody you're supposed to identify with and, you know, want to follow their journey. And about 20 pages in, I was like, I don't really know if I want to follow their journey, but I'm going to. <laughs> Do you mean Which like is a very different reaction. To unattractive mm -hmm. in the sense that she was like a Philistine or that she was. I, her, her personality, I found to be grating. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I think that there was an abrasiveness about it that I, I, I found to be deliberate. You know what I mean? I, I think there was something in there. Because, I mean, she was funny. I just thought she places. was a little dismissive. That was my, but I, I didn't have any issue with her. Oh, yeah. the self-deprecating stuff was hilarious. And I thought she could pick apart other people pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. darn well. Well, I mean, I, well, we'll get into that in a second. But, I, you know, the, the, interesting th <laughs> I, the interesting thing is that, I mean, to me, you know, I, I didn't really warm up to this character. And, again, where I started really thinking about it was because, you know, I... I really like, again, you know, some of the other fictional autobiography that has tended to be written by men. And because of that, I did want to pull back and say, well, wait a minute, am I not liking this person because it's a female voice? Huh. You know, I don't, I don't know. I, and that is not something that had ever occurred to me before. I, I didn't get that. I got um, the, I got the same kind of grading feeling you're talking about, but it was, it was more like being I was like, <laughs> trapped in a mode of thinking that I've, I've had before and couldn't get out of but wanted to desperately mm. and it's it reminded me of uh 
David Foster Wallace's short story, The Depressed Person. Oh, mm-hmm. That kind of thinking that loops back on itself continually. Interesting. And uh, that was the thing that made me uncomfortable. But I think I, like that. That's why oh, I made it Oh, and I know. It's, it, yeah. I could 100% relate <laughs> exactly. to it because I get into these thinking modes where it's just like, and I can go back and like, and a lot mm-hmm. of Analyze time, stuff yeah, to re- death. Especially like, <laughs> have you ever been in a fight with somebody and then like, you, you think of something really good to say like an hour later. Oh, yeah. And then you're like, oh, I should have said That's that. the mm-hmm. only time I ever have a comeback. Yeah, and that's, um, but I, I want to let you finish answering, Jen, and then I wanted to ask you something. So can, did you have any more you wanted to say about that? Ah, uh, more about, um, yeah. Oh, everything that you add to that sort of gives me more thoughts. Um, yes, I think it's a layering the, I think wanting to own, wanting to own all those negative bits. I think wanting to own that because I think mm. there's a lot of liveliness and there's a lot of um, uh, the recognition, maybe the permission, a kind of sense of, yeah, I can be, you know, I can be shitty. I can read about someone being shitty and, um, that somehow frees me to be able to find out more about my experience, and um, I like that. I like that. I, I I think I'm much more more of a chicken, you know, in real life than I am writing about what what I could possibly write about. Um, that's a challenge for me to be able to to what? own, if you like, really that's negative aspects. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see where you're coming from. So I, this is a completely unrelated to what we were talking about, but um, I read in your biography that you did an opera, and it was called A Dictionary of Maladies, and then yeah. you're, you're <laughs> currently researching the relationship between writing anorexia and the Gothic. Could you tell me a little bit about that research? Because that sounds absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely fascinating to me, and, I, 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 and anorexia just for our listeners as a part of the story. And uh, anorexia is actually a part of my story. I have a very close family member that suffered mm-hmm. from that. Mike knows him too. And, uh, and he's a male, which is very rare. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, he's mm-hmm. a real close family member. And um, so I've, you know, I've, I haven't lived through it, but I've been a family member of someone that suffers from it. So I, I was just curious how mm-hmm. that was tied in and what your research involves. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's finished, actually. Um, the... Yeah, that, that that currently all sort of is 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 about currently then, <laughs> but um, yes, the gothic the gothic mode. I, I became really fascinated by how that gothic mode is very much the mode of um, anorexic experience. So where objects take on magical kind of um, qualities, like a, an object is is really. Um, dangerous and 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 they can invade us go through our skin go through this it's fascinating reading more like as i discovered reading about the um other people's anorexic experiences um and the gothic is where objects can be much much bigger or much much smaller stranger than they are normally but also there's lots of you know subterranean aspects where you've got lots of fruitless searches for things but the whole that kind of manic search aspect um and taking inner experience for for a reality um the way that one can feel as if one's sort of locked somewhere up and and um 
and can actually make a life that that is locked up. It's it's all that kind of literal. Um, there's a lot about the Gothic, which is about making things literal. The figure, figurative no longer becomes literal. No, no longer is literal. So, um, anorexic experience is like living in a kind of uh, you know a theme park, um, a literal theme park where that's that is experience and it, and and. It can't be imagined any other way. I think that's what seems so entrapping because the um, the possibilities for somebody in that aesthetic is like, what do you do? Like, you run faster? What do you do? Do you do, do, do you throw out all those objects? Do you get rid of all those? Do you do, everything's exaggerated? Everything is like in a huge, huge exaggerated gothic experience novel. Oh. Is that film. is that going to be a book? Uh, yeah, I, well, I wrote it as a. Yeah, it probably is. It's sort of a hybridy. Yeah, it is. A, it is a hybrid thing. I'm. It's, it's so different with. Um, well, it's there's a the personal element in the in the non in the nonfiction. It's highly um, research. It's very focused research. Um, I just I'm just sort of got stuck when they say, "Can you do chapter um, chapter summaries?" And I'm sort of you know, most of the way through the chapter summaries. Oh, I don't want the chapter summaries because in fact. Interestingly, in my um, in like this book, Panthers, it's just got it's one throw. It's like I writing for me. I need that shape, that whole thing, you know, that thump. and so the whole. I go. I need to have that throw. It's like a piece of clay, you know. You can. I, I have a go, and it and it's like a, a dodgy pot. I pick it up, squash it round, soak it again, have another go. But my first book, the one that predates this, there were two parts. There was a long part and a short part, um, and something I've written since has got a long part and a short part. And it's not because I think that's the way people should write it's um you know i haven't come to that from a sort of any kind of plan or cognitive sort of decision like this is a great thing to do but my my thesis my my what will become a book i guess is also in two parts but it's got lots of small bits in it and that's why i was defeated all the small bits i thought oh i've got to, you know i've got a are they chapters i guess they're chapters i've got to chapter summaries so yeah that's a whole other thing Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> so, you know, we've this is flying by, and we actually haven't even had an excerpt from Jen's book. So let's pause for a second. We're going to hear an excerpt from her book, Panthers and the Museum of Fire. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and we want to thank uh, Jeff Parker for providing the music this week. We're going to be right back after this short little interlude. As I pushed by people at the bus stop, this side of the remnant of that burnt-out church, I remembered how obsessed I had been, only the day before, about what I should say about Sarah. Everything that I said about Sarah in the promised phone call will come back to Raph when I tell him about her death and funeral, I had thought as I prepared for his coming over to my place last night. It's been a year or two, possibly more, since I saw her in Rockdale, but as soon as I mentioned this one-time friend and described her voice, again imitating the way she had called me Jenny just to jog his memory, he will be sure to remember what I had said about her the last time. I'm in shock about this death, and more, there is guilt in my shock, a great smothering of guilt, and yet I can't even try to appear to be shocked and upset by the death of my one-time friend when I see Raph. I was thinking yesterday afternoon when I got back from the shops, this new term one-time friend making it easier for me to think of her in the situation with any kind of equanimity. Raph is sure to point out to me my hypocrisy if I appear to be shocked no matter how genuinely affected I might be when I tell him about the death and funeral of this friend of mine who was the exact same age as me 
and had gone to the same high school, had smelled the same raging but always distant bushfires through our teenage summers, which were precisely the same summers, no less human nor hot, no more interesting than other person's summers, except for the detail of one of us having had so much more access, as it's put, to so many more advantages, one being so much better off in a material way than the other. And yet there is also pleasure in the anticipation of telling Raph about this death and funeral. I had realized yesterday when I returned from the shops with my neatly wrapped kilo of prawns to prepare for his coming. I've so much more to say. The Germans have a word to describe this pleasure, but I can't think of what it is. The Germans have a word, but I have a sense that their word is more malicious and gleeful than the pleasure I am imagining. There's a pleasure in telling a story like this, and particularly a sad or depressing story that has the details of irony or surprise. The German word I am trying to remember could not possibly encompass the welling and, at base, willful determination to talk of such a pleasure, a description of which difference I would love to indulge in even though I have no knowledge at all about this word, and so a reference to it, in the company of Raph at least, even in an ironic and laughing, self-deprecating way, would only be pretentious. As tempting as it is to try to be clever when I see him, I shouldn't even mention this German word reference I remember telling myself as I began to peel the onions to accompany the prawns. The moment I overstep the elaboration, what I tell, I always regret it. Raph never fails to point out when what I say is inaccurate or exaggerated. The number of times that this happens should be enough to make me beware of such a temptation. Raph himself never fails to point out anyone's stupidities, and so the fact that I am always surprised when it happens to me is a stupidity in itself. The number of times I have left his flat, knowing that I have blundered, knowing that I have said the most stupid inanities, obvious inanities. He must often disgust me and with his own friends afterwards. I had only then realized as I used my fingernail to remove the resistant parts of the onion skin. One of the many friends I have never met but have been told very likely everything about. I have probably known unconsciously for years that he does this, and yet I always bring my old friend Raph and want to see him and tell him things. All right, we just heard from uh, a selection from Panthers and the Museum of Fire. It's a new book out by Jen Craig, new to us anyway, uh, from Zero Gram Press. I know this book came out uh, several years ago in Australia. Um, before the break, we were actually talking about your thesis about anorexia and the Gothic. And I know Jeremy had a cl uh, question that he wanted to follow up with that as well. Uh, different subject. That's fine. Okay. Uh, well, I just wanted to share this uh, with you, Jen. Um, Every once in a while when I read a book, I'm like, oh, that's me. And there is a um, – when you're writing about uh, – well, when Jen is – she has an interior monologue about oversized books on page 76. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yes. <clears throat> I am – Mike can tell you, like, if I see a book over 1,000 pages, I'm like, I'm getting it. You know, and I, Genius! I, yeah, I'm like, that's going to be good. I know it's good because it's 1,000 pages long. And uh, and she uh, – is it Rafe or Raf, her friend? I'm uh, – Raph, yeah. I called okay. him Raph throughout the book. Yeah. Raphaello. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but she she goes into this kind of uh, this not kind of but this description. Um, she uh, she says oversized novels and windows are usually the first ones that I give away as soon as I can. I give them away once. I read them because they invariably disappoint. And I've <laughs> I've had that experience <laughs> many a time. And you know sometimes you know you hit the nail on the head. But I'll I'll get uh. There was this one recently, this Italian writer. It was oh, called The right. Catholic School, and there was all this oh, hype about God. it. And I, I read like 200 pages, and it was the same thing. And it, 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 my problem is, is I couldn't, I can't give away 1,000-page novels because the only people that will read them are these two. And 
Um, you know, if I don't like it, they're probably not going to like yeah, it. Not necessarily, but you know. So. Don't pick up the Knicks, by the way. Another and, thousand page book. And I, but I, I wanted to let you know that, like, when I was reading that, and, it, and it's, I think it's a beautiful thing, like when you're reading a story that's about a woman in Australia that's going through her day. That I'm like, oh, that's just like me. So I just wanted to share that because I thought you might enjoy that. So. I actually wanted. Let's pick up on yeah. that for a second. You know, do you tend to write short because? I looked at this book and I said, thank God somebody's actually writing a sensibly sized book. You know, a lot of books we get um, are, no, I mean, I, I really feel they're padded out. We, we've had several books in the show, and I'm not going to name them, but we've had several books in the show that were 400, 500 pages. And if they'd been edited and lost yeah. 100 pages, they would have been brilliant. Well, I will say Jim's book was the opposite of this, but we're not his was about, tight. We're not talking about Jim Gower's book. But, I mean, I, I literally I've mm. seen new books. And I just wondered before we go to a quick station break if you could talk about that because I thought it was very admirable. And I can tell you right now, in American publishing, it's, it's nearly impossible to find a book that is under 200 pages. Yeah. That people just will not release Books it. by the pound. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, can I clarify about the long book? Because there, there are long books that I love. Actually, it's it's. Um... I do want to clarify. There's many I love too. I was just saying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the I think the 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 experience the narrator is writing about or speaking about, however you read that voice, um, is perhaps it's a publishing decision to create to get a hundred and forty page book and turn it into a two hundred page book. You know, it's. Um, something about deciding to make something seem bigger than it is, like not embracing its concision. Like, um, you know, I've got all the volumes of Proust and I, I, I love their, I mean, in the um, the French version, I love their tiny, 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 tiny sort of editions. I love the way the words are squashed in on the page. I like density. So it's in, in dense books. Um, I like that. It's something about the oversized to me um perhaps it's a kind of perspective issue like something about making something grander than it might have been and perhaps that also affects the editing decision um i think that's what that part is really about the something that's marketed as a big thing which is which is kind of you know you can just snap it off and eat it if you could just Dehydrated a bit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, we do need to take a quick break for station identification. We're talking with the author, Jen Craig, who is joining us live from Australia. She's written The Panthers and the Museum of Fire. It's on Zero Gram Press. When we come out of the break, we're going to hear another selection from her book. Again, thanks to Shannon Van Volt. Thanks to Jeff Parker. And you are listening to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. <laughs> And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. You have only known me since university, and so only since I had been robbed of my name by that weight loss company. A loss that I have never gotten over, as I've said before on any number of occasions, because laughably, and this may have been said many times over, at the time of the launch of the company I had been anorexic, a bag of pathetic stick bones, as a neighbor of my parents had once called me to my mother in the garden. You first got to know me at university long after I was anorexic, or in fact while I was still anorexic, and my name was a mockery. I reminded him yesterday's, and so getting to know me and having to accept the mockery of my name during those new early days of the diet company, while I still walked the country as a bag of stick bones with the diet company's name, 
where the diet company had named itself after me the bag of stick bones. All this had occurred at the same time. I could have changed my name, of course, as I've said before, and I had gone on to say, at the time so many people advised me to change my name, yourself included. Do you remember? Very likely not. But I was anorexic at the time, and I refused to listen to what they and you were saying. No anorexic can bear advice, and particularly no advice that touches on or even seems to touch on our inviolate selves. I know I have probably said this much before, but I know that many people don't understand this and can never understand this, which is why the problem of anorexia is only getting worse and worse. Anorectics are hypersensitive to any remark that seems to relate to their bodies as selves. Not so much their bodies as such, but their bodies as visible parts of the self that they are doing their utmost to protect from the inquisition of everyone. There are a lot of theories in the world about anorexia, and most of them are useless. Every doctor, every parent, every sister, every friend, every busybody neighbor has an opinion on anorexia. Every psychiatrist, every counselor, every cook, every friend of a friend, all those who haven't been anorexic themselves have no idea about anorexia because they have never led an anorexic existence. And it is the anorexic existence, the nature of this existence, the primacy of this existence, which matters more than anything else in the world to an anorectic. An anorectic needs to exist in this way because there is nothing else in their existence but existence itself. Everything else in the world they have given up for this existence. The anorectic is an addict of the anorexic existence. The fact that many such existences come to grief and premature death is neither here nor there for the anorectic. I know that in the past you have accused me of exaggerating the situation, both exaggerating the situation and logic of the anorectic, but the anorectic is already an exaggerated state. The anorectic is already an exaggeration. The existence that anorectics have chosen and continue to maintain for themselves at great cost to themselves is the one and only thing they can be sure of in the world, and so the fact that this existence will soon, in the course of things, and directly as a result of this existence, extinguish itself, a fact that no one ever hides from anorectics but instead uses as a weapon against them as often as they can, the supposed fact that an anorexic existence will soon very directly lead to a ceasing of that existence, even this anorexic existence, is hardly a matter of importance to them. The existence of anorectics is whole, entire, and they know that this wholeness and entirety will persist until the moment of death, that is, until the end of existence, their existence, which is all that they are asking for. Anorectics don't ask much of the world. All they ask is to be left to themselves in their anorexic existence, which they have chosen themselves, for themselves, and for nobody else. Hey, welcome back to I-94. Once again, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And we are speaking with Jen Craig. She is the author of Panthers and the Museum of Fire. It is out now on Zero Gram Press. You just heard an excerpt from her book. So we started the uh, the first half of the show with Jamie talking about uh, autofiction, or what's being called autofiction now, and that being... Uh, um, an interesting facet of the book for him. For me, the hook was immediate. It was the, it, this manuscript. So for listeners unfamiliar with the book, Panthers and the Museum of Fire is the title of a manuscript that the narrator is delivering to somebody who's waiting for her in a cafe. The somebody waiting for her is the sister of her friend who just passed away. Um, one of the things about Nosgaard's novels, if I understand correctly, like some of the stuff that was in there was uh, really salacious and it was, he used real names. And, yes, it's explicitly and, based on his family. Yeah, yeah. Right. So like talk about, you know, 
unappealing personality, you know, oh, yeah. being great. It, it, lawsuits came out of it, if I understand correctly. Yeah, his own father sued him, I believe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, one, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about uh, the device of, of. I was teased along through the whole book with that, by the way. This this manuscript that by this person who was kind of reclusive. We're finding bits and pieces out about Jen's friend throughout the book and what the book may or may not be about. Um, and I'll, I'll let you give more information on that if you want to. But um, also there, there's uh, a close friend that Jen talks to, Raf, and there's the uh, her friend who passed away and the sister of the friend. Are these were these real people? Or did you, you use real names? Did you have problems because of it? These are not real names. These are not real names. No, they're not exactly real people, but they're sort of based on real people. Um, they're hybridized, sort of bastardized, so to speak, people yeah. who it comes out of real experiences, but uh, but no, no. I, I think I'm, I, I'm very cautious about that. Yeah. I'm very cautious of that, that because I um, want – I'm happy to play around with me. You know, when you talked about ugly aspects of – someone who could be seen as completely me. I'm happy to play around with that, but I I wanted I didn't want to do that with somebody else, so um or any any people any any other person that I, you know, who could have been a, the the origin. But um so the person someone who might have for example been a seed for Raf, I think he read it. I don't think he even noticed he he was there. <laughs> He didn't hear anything. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Have you, uh, Jen, I was just curious, did you ever um, read anything about situationists or psychogeography, any of the, those theories from that? What is what is that? Psychogeography, it's, it's... Ian Sinclair in London, it's basically... It's like walking and, and being part of your city from a aesthetic point of view instead of just like walking... The of Paris. So yeah. Oh, yeah. what's yeah. his name? The, the guy you like from <clears throat> England. Guy Debord. Well, Guy Debord, but well, Ian Seclair is uh, the one from England. Well Self. And Well Self. But yeah. I was wondering, have, was that, are you familiar with them at all, or is that... I'm not familiar with them, no. Okay. But well, walking, on. yes, <laughs> in the sense of, no, no, you're introducing me to something new. Okay, um, well, this if, this text, this this novel would definitely fall under their spell, I think. I mean, it, it, it's uh-huh. obviously not influenced, because you don't, but... Maybe it's just a spirit. It's you know they were kind of like the mm-hmm. precursors to Dada and the uh, Fluxus movement and things like that. It was basically like art for art's sake, but also walking was a, they had the yeah. flanner. The, the flanners they they started in Paris first. Oh, the okay, the flanner. Well, yeah, yeah, some familiarity with that. You know, the flanner, flanner. Yeah, in some sense, I guess I could embrace that as a flanners, if you like, because I, not the theory itself as you describe it it's not familiar to me but um that is an aspect actually talking about the gendered aspect of the book um when i wrote that i wasn't aware of um a flanner's kind of experience i think there are books like that but um books that i had read were very much like a man walking through a street a man walking through a street where um a man walking through where men would go and a woman might not go um like yeah. Ulysses, something like that. That sounds. Well, yeah. Or, yeah. Well, perhaps like Ulysses, like like Orhan Pamuk, or like um, oh, I don't know okay. some 
Yeah, so certain kind of experiences where, especially in, in his context, or uh, um, yeah, Oster, I don't know. Well, that's that's the beautiful thing about the book. So, you know, everyone gets those different perspectives from them. I mean, I, I related to the the her discussing the large books, and then I got this, like, situationist vibe, but that's just me because that's what I've learned, and that's why I love mm-hmm. literature so mm-hmm. much because a lot of times when we interpret art, of any kind, you know, we put our own flavor, if you will, on it because, and yeah. that was my flavor for your book. And I, and I think it was great. I'm a huge fan of that movement and I've read a lot of their stuff. Mm, nice. And so it was like, it was like a nice tie in. So, um, just wanted to mention that. But, yeah. I think you've hit on something though. You, you bring up, there are very few female voices that talk about walking and the walkabout. And, yeah. yeah. And viewing their situation and responding to the city you know, this was a very city-based novel. I mean, the the the, mm. the street itself is a character in the book. You know, her yeah. her passage <laughs> through that um, really functions to kind of ground the whole thing. Because, you know, this is and I say this not as a criticism. There, there's not actually a lot of plot necessarily in the book in a traditional mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, she's out for a walk. She's talking about this manuscript she got. She's going to have dinner with her friend. You know, that's, there's more to it. But, you know, essentially that is two thirds of what happens in the book. And it's it's Mm. kind of interesting because, you know, a writer might cover that in a paragraph. You know what I mean? And and the fact that, you know, (laughs) well, no, I mean, seriously, you know, and and that was, again, you know, getting back to something I said earlier, that was one of the things that really, you know, impressed me because I really felt that you'd kind of decompressed what, what in my mind was a very short walk into a really, you know, very vivid experience that made this city that I'm, I'm not familiar with in Australia, because I've never been to Australia, uh, very real for me and very kind of tactile. <laughs> and that was extremely interesting, especially because in this particular edition, it's broken up with photos um, oh, yeah. uh, taken of, of sidewalks, which kind of do function as chapter breaks of a sort. But to me, when I came across one, you know, they're, they're pictures of, of sidewalks. Some of them are pictures of sidewalk graffiti. Um, they served, to me anyway, as kind of a weird, hard reminder that we were in a city. You know what I mean? And mm. and it was a cityscape. Uh, and it was it was kind of brutal, you know? And I, I was that intentional or was that something you and your collaborator thought about? Yes. Um, the photographs post-date post-dated the completion of the manuscript. Um, the, the the Australian publisher really had an idea of doing something with illustration. In the end, it turned out to be um, photographs. And Bettina actually did the walks of those. She, she started from where it started and she walked all the way through. And so those images come from that. Um, yeah, I like the brutality because I was just when I was looking through, you know, your observation about the brutality because... That is important to me. Um, yeah, that's important to me. And I noticed when I was just flicking through it recently, just you know, just prior to talking to you, well, like a week or so ago, I was glad to see those images come up, and they were not chapter breaks. Like I was, it was. I think they've been put in um, for aesthetic reasons. Uh, I don't actually remember being consulted about where they went. And I'm very happy about where they are, actually. I, I know that there's one that sort of interrupts a paragraph later. That's, so that's, they're not... That's um, interesting that it made you think about... That it made you feel at home in, in the setting of the book because it made me f- 
feel like I was walking through Chicago. I thought a lot about Chicago <laughs> reading this book. And the, 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 yeah. there's part of the reason this took me a long time to read it is, is so dense is because throughout this walk that you're like, you're being shuffled between like three or four different times, yeah, different yeah. places, you know, so like it'll yeah. be a memory and then in the memory, there'll be a memory of the memory. And it makes me yeah. think of just like spacing out you know, walking it, it, and I, I didn't think of the word brutal at all. Hmm. But while I was reading the book, but you should have been in a doctor's office. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, it makes me think about like walking around in the city when I should be on guard and have and just totally spacing out and you know finding myself in a not so great situation. There was a guy who got hit up in front of my apartment yesterday. I forgot to tell you, it's got ah. nailed. You know, sp spacing out, but. That's. I thought it was interesting that that's how I interpreted. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you're being so scared. Yeah, I tying into the sidewalk thing. I'm a skateboarder, and I skate around the city. And skateboarding around the city is a very, um, you're very intimate with the city, and sometimes you're very intimate with the sidewalk because you know you fall on it. And yes, and I I watch the sidewalk constantly when I'm skateboarding. Mm. So it's like it's something that people don't think about ever. Um, well, yeah. obviously you did and, and the book did, but um, <laughs> I'm very aware of the sidewalk and the conditions of the sidewalk. And, and so when I was going through the book, I saw that and I was just like, there's the one with the uh, with the covers. I'm like, yeah, that might catch you. You know, I go face first right there, you know, and that's and, and but it's it's funny because I never really thought about it until we're talking now. But like skateboarding is very much a flanner uh a hobby because I mean you are very intimate with the city and you're always watching and you're looking at everything around you but yeah. you're very aware of the 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 way it's set up and it can be I mean brutal in the aspect of at both definitions you know the hard tough surfaces and then hitting that you know with your face or your arm or whatever um that just I was just thinking about that and as we told you before the show I'm the tangent guy so but uh what I'm saying and what I'm getting to is your book has made me think about a lot of different yeah. things that I yeah. might not necessarily mm -hmm. think about. Yeah. And that Puts to you me, in a state of mind. that to me is like the state of mind that you get into when you read literature like this and you can bring in all these aspects. That's to mm -hmm. me is like the beauty of yeah. why we read. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what, you know, I started out, you know, saying, you know, where I read this for a very specific reason and talked about what, you know, the book made me ask questions about. And I think it's rare that you read a book that, that does that. Um, I mean, I, I can't remember, actually, the last book we had on the show that made me ask a question like that in this way. I don't know if there's been one this year. I can't think off the top of you my know, head. So I, I think that it, you, you hit on something pretty interesting and deep here, Jen, actually. And, and I want to congratulate you on that. Because, I mean, I think this is quite an accomplishment in, in really 120 pages. When this came out in Australia, I believe it was released in 2015. Am I right? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. How, yeah. how was this received? You know, this is one of the bad things about being an American. Uh, we rarely, though we try to do it on the show, you know, we don't know anything about American, uh, excuse me, Australian literature. We don't know anything about Australian culture. You know, I know that you guys are barraged with all this stuff about Trump and all, all elections, but we couldn't even tell you <laughs> whether Scott Morrison was still in power. And my colleagues probably don't even know who that is. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it, it, it's a completely um, one way transaction. You know what I mean? From from America to Australia. So it's very interesting. How was this book received yeah. there? Well, the um, oh, there's that, that extra. It, 
the extract um, from the books that are in publisher, that little bit at the bottom, came out almost immediately. Like it was not supposed to be officially, I don't know, released, I don't know, launched anyway till the middle of the year. But as soon as, like I think it was January, I, there was this um, review from um, and Angie Andrews. Um, it was through a trade mag. And... Um, Oh, yeah, that was amazing. That was amazing. I don't know how I heard about that. The publisher sent it to me, so it was surprising. I, I, I keep coming across people who know it. Um, who I, I guess I, had, I, I'd come, I'm come to a point in my writing where I was just I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't give a, I didn't, I didn't care, you know, about what happened. I, I really wanted to do what was exciting for me to write the kind of work that I, I like reading. And so I was surprised it had this kind of small growing kind of, um, I don't know, a fandom. I haven't met everybody, but there is, I, I have a sense that it had, it was received and then it was, um, it was nominated for the Stella, the, the Stella Award to probably to explain, I guess, no, the Stella Award is a, an award for women's writing. It's not necessarily novels like the, the award winner this year was uh it was a fiction book on fiction and sorry non-fiction what was it um it was um i think jesse hill's book it's like uh look what you made me do is a really quite harrowing book on uh domestic violence actually oh, really, okay. really really interesting and important uh, so that was a that was a book that won this year's stella uh i think it's this year this has been a long and strange year i'm pretty sure it's this year <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so it was nominated, which was super surprising for me. And I remember, um, and you know, so it was in the long list, and so it was it was caught. And in fact, um, a lot of things have come from that attention because it's uh, it was originally released by a very small publishing house, which only um, publishes short fiction. Hence, it's um, hence them taking on a, a book of this size because they wouldn't normally publish uh, novels, and. Um, it still seems to have it's. It still seems to be there. I know it's not a, not a. It was it was too much for me actually. I'm, it, it was small by any other probably any other writer standard, but for me it was, you know, a huge kind of exposure that brought up a lot of anxiety. I, I wasn't used to that kind of exposure. So um, yeah, I'm learning to to relate to it as an object that um, is. Relate or relate to my writing as as something that's not so harrowing yeah. to my being, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> so I can talk to you today. And and now, of course, it's on a I would call Zerogram kind of a cult press. Oh yeah. 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 So you know. And you're on the radio in Chicago with a bunch of knuckleheads. So, that's you know, true. Yeah. You've so made now, it. Now you've made it. Just <laughs> well, Jen. I just love the niche, the enthusiasm, the niche aspect of well, Zerogram, the the the. It's sort of electric sort of feeling of enthusiasm, as you say, cult. I love that, and I love, I know, I love what you guys are doing. How did you guys? How did you guys hook up? Important to you. Yeah. I, I'm really glad to find readers like you. Thank you. How did you and Jim find each other? Sorry. How did you and Jim end up? Uh, did he read a review of your book, or, or how did Jim? End no, well, Jim is uh, to probably cut a long story short. Um, uh, my agent, my current agent, found me through found me after after Panthers, um, and he was keen to get 
Panthers out to uh, international reader, reader, readerships. Um, so what, when that happened sort of early last year um, and um, he sent it out, I think. He sent it out and Jim found it on a, on a slush pile, or the pile he inherited oh, um, at yeah. Zero. And, um, and then suddenly, yeah, there was a lot of communication. So he wasn't looking out for it in that sense. It was there... Um, it had been passed on to him, presumably by the previous publisher of, um, of so Zero Ground. I, I wonder what the odds are. Well, with that, we are running out of time. Uh, Jen, thank you so much. Thank Before you, we Jen. let you go, what's we obviously this came out five years ago for you. What is what's the next book that's coming out? Uh, there's an um, there's a ne- there's another book coming out. It's longer. Okay. <laughs> not that much longer but it is longer mm-hmm. um it's got a very it's just got one one word title um it's 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 looking around it's looking for a home at the moment um um it's a it also has a narrator that could be you could it could be interpreted as me you know is um uh, like Jim likes to see it as my author, orthographic sort of project, because um, yeah. <laughs> it seems to be what I've been doing. In fact, yeah. my first book was doing that without being aware that I was doing that. So, um, so the the next book is about um, it's about art, the art, in, you know, the art industry. I suppose mm-hmm. it's about um, it plays around with that, you know, very tongue in cheek. It's about um, it's about hoarding. It's about difficulty, loss. It's about um, it's about having to deal with stuff. It's also about miscommunication. It's it's also about miscommunication with friends, which is a little bit there in Panthers as well, but it goes into it more deeply. Great. Well, we've been speaking yeah. today with Jen Craig from Australia. Thanks so much again. Thank She's you, the Jen. author you, of Panthers and the Museum of Fire. It's out now on Zero Gram Press. And as always, we give authors the last word. So we're going to go out with another clip read by Shanna Van Volt from her book. Jen, again, thanks so much for thanks, spending Jen. time with us. We really appreciate it. And Thank wh- you so much, Jamie, Jeremy, and Mike. And when you get that next book out, hit us up. Let yeah. Us Please do. Lovely. It'd be really nice to chat to you guys again. Yeah, it'd be very nice. Thanks for your time. You're a pleasure. You are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. I had said to Raph that nothing I heard in the chapel at the crematorium reminded me of the friend I once had or explained that friendship. I could see her coffin, of course, and the parents who I recognized, although they were so much reduced, and the sister that I had only just met for the first time, as I'd thought and a man who had been either her brother or her husband, a thick and stiff back man with fuzz on his neck. But otherwise, there was nothing at all that connected me with Sarah. An obscene-looking man had spoken at the funeral, speaking of Sarah, but nothing that he said triggered any kind of memory that I might have had of her. He talked about Sarah's value as a daughter and a sister. He talked about her work at the council and where she had lived. He talked about her travels in Japan and quoted from some emails that she had sent her family from there in all emails with plenty of cliches about family and friends that he must either have written himself or fished with great care from a gigantic trawl. He finished with a pompous introduction to a song whose chorus went, Nothing compares to you. Supposedly her favorite song, as he had said, although how on earth could he have known it was her favorite song I remember thinking at the time. I told Rath, even if he was the brother or the brother-in-law or just a minister, it didn't matter. How on earth could he have known such a thing as this unless somebody had told him? 
People are always passing on supposed facts about somebody else, supposed facts about the favorite foods and songs and books, and most of the time they are completely wrong. Just because someone had once said they liked a certain song or a certain book or a certain drink, you can be sure that someone else will remember this person saying that this song, this book, or this drink was their favorite thing in the world. Perhaps all it takes is for you to hum the tune of a chorus one day for no other reason than someone else in the bus had been humming that tune or that you thought you'd heard it emerging in the tensile vibrations from their earbuds, and everyone in the office that day begins to surmise that this tune that they recognize too is the song that best defines you, that they could call it your favorite song when anybody asked them should it turn out that you die that week or a short time later. How many times is it that you hear something that you've said being turned against you in this way? Some reckless comments, some off-the-cuff remarks, some coincidence in ordering, say, a blueberry frappe two times in a row with the same group of people. Beware where you walk, beware what you say, I'd said to Raph as I measured the rice into a saucepan. You can even tell a story in one way just to hear it come back to you told as if you told it in another way entirely. I had told him until I realized that the coffin had disappeared, that all the time I had been thinking these thoughts, the coffin had either been lowered into the story below or slid backwards behind the curtains, and either way the process had happened in silence or the sounds of the coffin sliding on tracks or being lowered on cantilevers had been covered over by the song. All the scraping and squeaking of the moving parts smoothed over, either smothered by the song, a song which I remembered actually liking when it had come out over a decade ago, or not so much liking but finding myself singing over and over. This song which in no way correlated with anything that I could imagine, let alone remember, about my old friend Sarah. No doubt I then realized at the funeral after the song had finished, as I'd go on to tell Rath, this thought coming at me suddenly, Sarah has already been burned. They have only played that song to distract us, so we might not notice that the coffin has had to move away, so that the body could be burned and disposed of quickly. There had been several chapels in the crematorium, or so I had noticed when I arrived, all of them pointing inwards like the leaves of a clover to a stalk, and Sarah's wasn't the only memorial service in the crematorium. The chapel next door was already emptying out as we were gathering, and another event I'd seen was about to begin. The furnace would have been at the back of the chapel. It was either at the back or directly beneath where we had all been sitting, and the moment the coffin was gone, it had probably been burned. There would have been a roar and a flare and a whitening into ash. The song was a ruse then, I told my friend Raph as he worked at the melon yesterday and it was very likely that it had never been a favorite song of Sarah's at all, but just the most apt, most covering over song there was, or the most easily found one, the CD on top of the pile in the room the family had just started to clear the day before the funeral, when the director of the service had asked someone for some music to smooth the proceedings. Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Jen Craig, author of Panthers and the Museum of Fire, out now from Zero Gram. This episode originally aired on November 5th, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.